so Christina, we're getting feedback about me always saying, so Christina. You do say it an awful lot, Chris. I do say it an awful lot. Put that on a (laughs) t-shirt. There you go. How we got here. So Christina. But (laughs) Christina, there is, there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconception about hospice. There is. And today is actually a bonus episode, which is really exciting because this gives us an opportunity to do a deep dive um, into a topic of conversation that came up the first half of the season. In this case, hospice, which came up in our conversation with Jessica Zitter for our first episode. Yeah, lots of still continues to be misconceptions uh, around hospice care delivery. Now, I feel fortunate for both of us, I guess, speaking on behalf of both of us, that we both had experience with hospice. So we know the positives, we know the good that can come from hospice. Hospice is near and dear to my heart, both when I did my unit of CPE and then as I uh, held Richard when he uh, made his life transition in hospice seven years ago. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We got here with Christina Best and Christopher McClellan. Brought to you by Anthem. Welcome to How We Got Here, a podcast that enriches our understanding of what it means to give and receive care. How We Got Here is a new podcast from caregiving.com and the Whole Care Network, and is brought to you by Anthem. I'm your co-host, Christopher McClellan, and I'm joined by... Christina Best for a bonus episode. Oh, my goodness gracious, St. Ignatius. Christina, we're already halfway through this. I I can't believe it. It's flying by. So many wonderful conversations. It is, but it certainly is fun because I've said... So, Christine, I've said that like nine zillion times. You have, as well episodes. as goodness gracious, St. Ignatius. That's my one of my favorite that is another pet, of yours. <laughs> that's another pet phrase of mine. So. Well, anyway, today we have the privilege of being with someone I consider the expert on hospice, Ido Banek of NHPCO. Chris, will you do the honors of reading his bio for do. us and welcoming our guest? Thank guests? you. And, you know... And Ido is the uh, president and CEO of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. And prior to that, uh, Ido was the deputy director of the Medicare, Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and associate general counsel at the Visiting Nurse Services of New York. Ido also practices health law and prior to attending law school, he worked for the New York City Department of Homeless Services and the Mayor's Office of Operations. Goodness, Ida, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It's just a thrill to, to get to know you and, and visit with you today on such an important topic. But as we do with all our guests, I have to ask, how did you get here? Serendipity. I um, It found me. It always, 
you rattled off some of the jobs that I've had, but in all of those jobs, I came in contact with person-centered, community-based, interdisciplinary care, palliative care, hospice. It always resonated with me as the kind of care that we want, certainly at the end of our life, but really throughout it. And Mm -hmm. why is it the case that, you know, you have to fight so hard to get any sort of empathy from our healthcare system until the very end. And, and so when this opportunity came up and it, it really just came up, it was serendipitous. And, and I'm glad four years later that I'm here and doing the best I can to you know spread the gospel. Well, I, I remember you being welcomed as the new president. In fact, the NHPCO annual conference in 2017, I think was one of my first professional conferences mm-hmm. when I joined the Carely team. All those years ago. Oh my God. Do you remember me playing the drums? They're right, they're right <laughs> yeah. back at me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a big task. You know, my job is to make sure that I represent the caregivers, the, the families, the patients, people on the receiving end of care, and also the, the nurses and the social workers and the chaplains. It's really all about them. And, I, and I'm, their, I'm their, their vessel. You know, I, I tell their story. That's my job. And, and I'm getting better at it. And it's not for me. It's for the people that are on the other side of this care. I want to make sure that when, when you talk about hospice, you don't get sad emojis from everyone on Facebook. And I want to make sure right. that we, you know, get some of those misconceptions out of the way. And, and then I want to make sure we build upon this and, you know, improve our healthcare system, period. And hospice really is one of the most misunderstood programs out there because, and I, you know, personally, I believe because people don't really think about it until they're in the middle of a crisis. Right. You know, it, it, it might be in a waiting room when someone finally breaks the news to you that you have a, a life-limiting illness, that you finally, you know, take your smartphone out and you Google the word hospice or something like right. that. And, you know, and unfortunately, it is, that's often too late to really get the full experience. And you know, hospice is associated with giving up. You're at that last stage of your serious illness and you've gotten everything else, every poke and prod you possibly could, and now it's time for hospice. The the reality is that the time for hospice, or the, at least the type, time for a conversation about what hospice is, is way before that. So that you can make sure, look, I, unfortunately, the healthcare system makes us make a tough choice, which I'll get to that. We don't want that choice to be a choice. But right now, you either have to choose palliative care or you have to choose curative care. But for a lot of people, take my great aunt Ruby. She's got COPD. There's no cure for COPD. There is no curative care for COPD. There's no cure for Alzheimer's. There's no cure for COVID, right? There's no (laughs) cure for a lot of serious illness. But we still have this odd situation where you either choose curative care, of which there isn't for a lot of disease, or you choose palliative care, which is equated with giving up. The reality is, do you want a healthcare system that's going to make you decline and get broken before you can get any care? And really only then tend to your physical needs, if that. Or do you want a healthcare system that's more holistic, that takes care of some of your needs, your behavioral needs, your social needs, as well as your physical needs? In which case, I think we have a conversation we can have about what hospice is and, and what community-based palliative care is before that. When you hear the word hospice and palliative care, people often don't understand the difference between the two. And right. then when you add curative with it, because we're all focused on, you know, we, we do want to get better. Right. But I remember the day when the uh, physician in the hospice said to me, we don't know how uh, Richard has... 
that's my partner, has lived as long as he's lived, considering the amount of cancer that's in him. And it's having those, you know, those conversations, the the ability to have those honest conversations that I think really uh, sets hospice apart. Yeah, you know, at at its best, it, it certainly does. And I think that that said, it's really important for there not to be this world where the honest conversations are only happening at the hospice level. Right. Uh, in other words, the oncologist or the radiologist or whoever it is has to be having that honest conversation with the patient and family throughout. And so it's really a shared decision and ultimately the patient's decision, family's decision as to when, when is the appropriate time. The misconception about hospice and palliative care is totally understandable because there's no Medicare community-based palliative care benefit. We talk about it all the time. There are associations dedicated to it. But there's no such thing as far as Medicare is concerned. It's whatever you can cobble together as a provider or as a payer and call palliative care. It's why we're working right now on a community-based palliative care demonstration that Medicare would actually pay for. So that's the future. That but is obviously the future. We're, we're standing on 40 years of, of history. And I think that hospice itself, it started out as a demonstration. It was a community-based movement that and this is you asked me before about you know how I came to this. I'm a I, I'm an organizer, and I love stories that really are you know you had a group of folks who were really committed. Margaret Mead, the, the only it, it, a, a group of committed folks are the only people who changed the world or something like that. Right. That, that's exactly what happened here, and people who refused to sort of take that the healthcare system treats people at the last end chapters of life so poorly. One of those people was Leon Panetta. We had him, uh, we had a conference last week and I interviewed Leon Panetta. He and Bob Dole were the two people who were on the receiving end of a lot of that advocacy. Without them and without that grassroots support, hospice never would have come to be. And it's just, it's a miracle. And yet, if we just keep it still and we keep it what it is now, then we're not doing it justice. We have to continue to evolve with the rest of the healthcare system and change it too. And I want to take a step back even from the professional side of all of it. And I'm just curious for you, community-based care and support, where does that within you, uh, that passion for that space come from? It sounds like you've been doing that your whole life, your whole career. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was born and raised on a kibbutz in Israel, a commune. And my parents were hippies. My my father was the son of Holocaust survivors. They came to Israel. My mom was from the, the States and they settled in this commune. And I was raised by an interdisciplinary team. I lived in a children's house. There were all sorts of people who had all sorts of jobs. I knew who my parents were, I think. And so it, it really resonates with me that there is a community, a village that takes care of people. And in this society, capitalism, America, you have to sort of recreate that because people have a whole bunch of different needs. Not all of them are going to be met by their family or by their friends. You also have a lot of people who are alienated, who are who are pushed out of society. And, and actually, as we're in the midst of COVID and we've had all these conversations about equity, it's also important to recognize that that hospice came to be, came up as a benefit in the mid-80s. What else was happening in the mid-80s was the HIV and AIDS crisis. And so 
And so right at the time when you've had this benefit that seemingly theoretically was created for cancer, you had a really, really serious illness working its way through the country. And it was an early decision that I think a lot of those founders of the movement had to make. Are we simply a cancer benefit or are we broader than that? Are we a serious illness benefit? And they chose the latter it's a, to their credit because the serious illness, folks did not know how you got it, just like in the early days of COVID. But what we do know is that it's our job to make sure that folks get the support and the help that they need, even if their family has said, you're not part of the family anymore. All right. So, so here you have an interdisciplinary team that wraps themselves around a complete stranger and says, we got you. And that's, I love that. That is sort of, that's what's supposed to happen in a village. Right. And I guess that's where it comes from for me. Thank you for sharing that. So this reminds me when you're talking about the hospice movement coming about in the 80s as a previous conversation with Richard Louis a couple episodes ago. And he shared an anecdote I hadn't heard before about these nurses in a particular ward in a San Francisco hospital who were taking care of HIV patients or AIDS patients at the end of their lives. And I was just so touched um, by that story. And I think it really encapsulates what hospice and palliative care, where it comes from, is being with people through the end of life, bearing witness to that experience with people, making sure that they know that they're not alone. And, and I think it goes back to really the, the beginning of the, the hospice benefit. It started uh, with Dame Cicely Saunders. I'm sure folks have told this story and the, the, the model coming up in, in England. But what was going on then was you, know, you had had World War II end in the 40s. Um, you had a lot of trauma from Holocaust survivors and those who were on both sides of the war that came out, manifested itself in really interesting ways as folks were dying. And that's what the model was built for. It was really built for complex death, which, you know, at the end of the day, that's all of us. We all have interesting lives and, and there are good and bad parts of it. There are things that we regret and there are things that we don't regret. And there's just a, a, a need for uh, a recognition of that really fundamental dignity that everyone has. And it's beautiful in a sense that we have a benefit that allows folks to really care for the person, no matter who they were, no matter what they did, in a very holistic way, no matter whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. How rare is that, that we have a part of our healthcare system where you sort of put all that aside? And at its best, that's that's what we do here. Yeah, the When you get right down to it, when it caregiving, hospice, I mean, it's pretty much indiscriminate. There's no boundaries. Everybody really is going to experience the stages in life. And right. it's how we can provide those needed services that really make a difference in, in our care. Yeah, and I, th I think the way that we up our game then is saying, okay, now we have to be aware of the fact that despite that ideal, there are some inequities in the system. Mm -hmm. It is true that African-Americans do not access the hospice system as much as white Americans. It is true that folks who are LGBTQ uh, don't often receive care that, that is sensitive to their needs. For example, what is your family, right, may be relevant, but who's your partner, who's your loved one is, is also a relevant question. So I think that there are ways in which we have to continue to up our game and, and evolve when it comes to access. Then there's quality. There's good care and there's bad care. I want to make sure that everyone who gets care that's called hospice gets good care and that anybody who's not committed to providing good care go do something else. How does a family or an individual, how do, how do you select a hospice? 
Well, number one, you go on nhpco.org and you go on the Find a Provider <laughs> Tool. Of course. Yeah, so a great one provider thing. tool. But beyond that, we're, we're building a, a quality uh, program that is going to allow you to see who's at the top of their game, who's at the bottom of their game, and who's somewhere in the middle. I think that is something that ultimately the government's going to do, but we're not waiting. Uh, we want to make sure that through our quality connections program, families really have a good sense of what a quality hospice is. And then even before that, through our reimagined uh, part of our website that's a consumer-facing uh, part of our website, which is caring info, that folks have a sense of what is hospice, what is palliative care, what are, uh, what's advanced care planning, what's a healthcare proxy, and all that information is going to be available to folks through um, our website as well. I love the proactive information sharing for future caregivers and current caregivers, as well as the visibility of hospice services, as you said, who's doing well and who's not doing so well. So you know what you're getting into. Sure. And I think, look, Christopher asked this question before, but I think that um, the key is to figure out some of this information before you need it. And no one wants to have the conversation about the end of life and serious illness, but we, we, you know, we shop more for cars and fridges than we do for care, caregivers, caregiving, obviously hospice care as well. So what I would encourage people to do is, you know, it could be through volunteering. It could be through philanthropy. It could be through going to visit them, but go visit your local hospice. Make sure that you're aware of who they are and what they do. Every holiday, they may have a fundraiser. Attend that fundraiser. Get to know some of those folks. I think it's a, it's a good investment and you're going to need them with as Benjamin Franklin said, there are only two things in life that you can bank on, and death and taxes are the two. So you're, you're going to need a hospice. And selecting them are, is very important, especially early on in the game. Absolutely. I had the, um, the privilege of visiting the St. Christopher's Hospice, which I talked about being specifically Saunders, when I went to London two years ago when we were to travel. And they actually have a pub in the middle of the hospice there now. And every Tuesday and Thursday night, I may be making this up, they have a trivia night for the community. What a great idea. So everyone comes out there, does trivia night, and, and then finds out about hospice while they're at it. I love that. So we, we may have to recreate that, maybe at, uh, at a hospice near you. I, I am all in. I just, I just love the trivia part or the, or, the, or the pub part or the hospice part? Yeah, I'm thinking the, the pub part, part but... Yeah, I think <laughs> a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would do good on the trivia if it was like hockey or something like that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm horrible at trivia. <laughs> One of the things I learned in in the process of our experience of hospice, and when we were trying to select what was the right hospice for Richard, uh, I actually end up having to fire the first hospice. The second hospice uh, that we selected was willing to do a radiation treatment because they didn't list that as curative. They listed that as uh, palliative care. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the differences of what the services could be? Yeah, I mean, so long as the services is related to someone's terminal illness, it can be provided by the hospice. And and, in your example, radiation care for a dementia patient for an unrelated illness may not be covered, may not be part of hospice right. care because it's not related to their illness. Radiation care that is meant to cure may not be covered. But radiation care that's meant to make you comfortable is covered. Right. That's the dividing line there between what's covered and not covered. I will say, though, this is where I think we, we trip up the public with respect to do you want hospice or do you not want hospice. 
These are complicated dividing lines that often make no sense. I think that it would make a lot more sense to say, yeah, you have previous, you have hospice care, and that is a very defined benefit and very intensive, both in payment and in, in benefits that folks get. But ahead of that, there is something called palliative care, where you can actually receive all of the services that you could get otherwise through Medicare, Medicaid, or anything else. But in addition to that, you can get these wraparound services. Think of it like a hug that provide you with a lot of the, the gray area that within the healthcare system that, that isn't covered. The chaplain services, for example, mm-hmm. the services for the family, grief and bereavement services after the case things like that, and you don't have as many questions about what's over the line and what's under the line. That is community-based palliative care, and that is what's a little gray right now that we'd like to make a lot clearer going forward. So I think that brings us to another good transitional topic, which is what NHPCO does outside of some of the projects you mentioned earlier and some of the current events uh, and programs you guys are working on, perhaps related to expanding community-based palliative care and hospice services? Sure. So we represent over a thousand providers across the country uh, with the oldest and largest organization that represents the providers of hospice and palliative care. Nonprofit, for-profit, big, small, urban, rural, only hospice, hospice and palliative care, palliative care only. So the big umbrella. Given that, we have a responsibility. Number one, to make sure that all care that's provided is as high quality and compliant as it could be. You know, two, that we educate folks on what is hospice and what is palliative care, the general public, and how to do it well, our members. The third thing is that we advocate, uh, that we don't rest on our laurels and advocate defensively, but actually we, we advocate offensively, not in an offensive way, but really <laughs> what, what is good about the care that we provide and how can more people get it? And so we, we work well with Congress and with the administration, the last one and this one, to make sure that folks know who we are, they know what we do, and we can provide more of the kind of care that we do even earlier. To do that requires data, and it requires a lot of brain power, but that's what we're here for. We have 40-plus employees in the D.C. area who really exist to serve the folks who are on the front lines of providing this care. COVID-19 was, was incredible, is incredible in, in a negative way. I mean, half a million people have died, and that's a national tragedy. Our folks have been on the front lines of helping to provide care to folks who are seriously ill for a long time, including through this time. And our um, focus has been on making sure that they're protected with PPE and the like, that they're tested and that they're vaccinated. And then we think about ways in which uh, the workforce can actually provide more care to more people earlier. What have we learned through this pandemic? How do we use technology to supplement the workforce? These are all things that we're thinking about in, in real time. And there's always a always a question, and you mentioned it here, that nonprofit and for-profit. Yeah. Is there a difference uh, in nonprofit and for-profit uh, hospices? The answer is it depends. Uh, it depends on where you live and which nonprofit and for-profit you're talking about. I know some really good nonprofits, and I know some really bad ones. And I know some really good for-profits, and I know some really bad ones. It's why we need to focus on 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 quality of care. Is is Amazon? Is Google? Are, are they are they bad companies? I don't know. They're pretty good at what they do. Mm-hmm. In the same sense, there are things that they could do better in a, in, a, in, a, in a place that comes more from the heart. I have a nonprofit background. I worked at the Visiting Nurse Service of New York at the Medicare Rights Center. I'm more of a nonprofit guy. Right. But there's certainly a lot of 
good for-profit providers out there, both publicly traded ones and, and ones that, that are uh, privately held. And my goal is to make sure that we focus on high-quality care full stop. Because that's really what the bottom line is. It's high quality care. Well, I mean, if you're if you're a patient, uh, it does you no good that someone is either high making a lot of money or making a little bit of money. That's not the issue. The issue is, are they providing good care for my family? And if if someone is doing, remember, they all get paid the same. I mean, Medicare pays everyone the same. <laughs> the only question is what they do with that money and what taxes they pay. I think, again, the key is, are they providing good quality care to folks? Are they, are they compliant? Are they training their staff? Do they have a good culture? I mean, are, are the staff really bought into this, this model of care? Those are things that are really important and I think that you can really pick up on if you do a little bit of homework ahead of time. But I don't think it's, it is not, I think, fair for me to sort of have a sort of a, a general statement that all this or all that is bad. Right. I have seen good and bad. We have a thousand members. Two thirds of our members are actually nonprofit, but we've got some really good for-profit providers. We've got some really good nonprofit providers. I love them all, but mostly I love the patients and families who are on the receiving end of this care, and I want them to get the best care they can get. And of course, having a pub in the center is pretty good too. <laughs> well, that's that's part of love. <laughs> that's part mm-hmm. of the love. Yeah. So, Christina, we're just like rocking and rolling on these podcasts, but we want people to subscribe. We do. I, I think it would be lovely if people wouldn't mind not only subscribing, but rating the podcast. Five, uh, obviously yeah, five. It, yeah, exactly. Five out of five, hands down. And if you could write in six, that's okay too. <laughs> exactly. It's super valuable for people to leave reviews. I think all the podcast libraries pay attention to that stuff. So if we can get folks uh, subscribing, rating to our podcast, that just helps other people find our podcast. Yeah, so wherever you're listening to How We Got Here, whatever podcast platform, just go ahead and subscribe, hit the five stars, and then leave a comment. If you've got a guest in mind for us to interview, send that along too. Have there been any stories that have come out of even the last year alone through COVID that have had a profound effect on you, hospice-related or end-of-life care-related? You know, there, there have been a couple. Uh, one was a, a number of them actually involved music therapists. The music therapists are, oh, yes. you know, they do wonderful work. And it is, it's not just somebody strumming a guitar. I mean, these are folks who, who know what they're doing. They go to school for it. They take a test for it. And, you know, music therapists not being able to go inside, say, the nursing home, or sometimes even the patient's home, standing at the window and playing music for the patient, you know, just improvising, doing it virtually versus tele, you know, via telehealth, I think. So that's one thing that really stands out to me. Uh, the other thing is we really early on, we had a kind of a social media post that, that talked about, I think we called, yeah, we called it faces of caring. So masks, people wearing masks really early on, April, March and April of last year, and there was a hospice nurse who was going to um, going to do a visit, leaving her family behind. She had her mask on, and she was singing uh, "Into the Great Unknown" from Frozen Two, probably because she had just 
you know, watch the movie with, with her daughter. But she was literally going out into the great unknown. March of last year, we didn't know that COVID was air, air, airborne. Some people did, the general public didn't. And uh, that really resonated with me because here you had someone who was, she was risking her life to go out there and care for someone else's life. And we had so much of that. And it's not just it's not just the hospice workforce. It's also the people who are delivering food and, and doing all the things out there while the rest of us, or at least me, were in, in our homes. And I think to anyone who was doing that, they have my respect and, and sincere gratitude for all the work that they did. You know, even though we, we lost many lives, we saved many, including, including in a behavioral way through the work that they did. I have to share my music therapy story, if that's okay with the two of you. Oh, yeah. We consent. This is about 20 years ago. Oh, and, and then I, I have I think, another story because I, I have oh, another story I want to tell. Go ahead, please. Yes, yes. This is a story sharing hour. It's so wonderful that this happened about 20 years ago when I was uh, doing a unit of CPE. That's clinical pastoral education for our listeners. And a woman who was, she was in her 80s or 90s. She had been, not been, been very responsive for a couple of days. And music therapists came in and uh, she had her, guitar and and uh, she said well I'm going to just play some songs that that she would remember from her era so she strung some songs from her guitar and in a couple of minutes the woman was humming and responsive and uh, was able to communicate with her family and she hadn't been able to communicate for a few days and they were able to have a, I think, a day or two at least of communicating with her before, before she made her transition, and it was all because of that, that music therapist that came into the room and just, can I play something that would be contemporary to her life? And I, I don't remember a whole lot about CPE. I do remember, uh, I remember that story and another story about a doctor. Then that, that's one of the things that that made me instantly comfortable with hospice. And I just wanted to share that with you. It's a lovely story. Mine is similar. This was pre-COVID. I, I went out on a, sometimes on Fridays, I go out and take visits just with, with some of our members and just kind of try to stay connected. And I was with a music therapist in an inpatient setting with a patient and her, and her son. And the music therapist came in and said, what would you like me to, to play a woman in her 90s, African-American woman in, in Baltimore. And she said, Johnny Cash, which is not what I would have expected. Right. <laughs> and so the music therapist played just excellent rendition of uh, Johnny Cash song. I think it was, uh, did I walk the line? I don't know. It was so, it was, it was a good one. Played that song. And then the son next to me, we, we were talking and he mentioned that um, his mom was a, was an elder in the, the church, had been very active. And so I mentioned that to the music therapist because I thought it might be relevant. And so she started playing a, a, a hymn. And I still remember it's called All Other Ground is Sinking Sand, I think. And I'm Jewish, so I don't know hymns, those hymns. So she started to play that and the patient started singing along. And she hadn't really been responsive and, and all that much singing along. And then she looked at me and she said, why aren't you singing? And I said, well, because <laughs> I'm, I'm the CEO and, you know, I don't Sing, and she was like, "I want you to sing with me." So I did. I made, I made up some words, and I, I, I pretended to sing along. And then I actually did sing along once I caught on. And then I left. And the music therapist called me literally five minutes later and said she just died. 
And it was amazing to me that I, I had had a, a bit part <laughs> in that very, very last act. And it was just, it was beautiful. It was actually not sad. It's and her son sad. was so thankful. Oh. And it was reaffirming for me that the work that, that our members do is so important. Uh, because it gave some peace to a family uh, right at the end. What a beautiful transition that you participated in with, with her and her family. It's an honor. Have either of you given any thought to uh, the last song or sound you want to hear as we reflect on music and final moments? Please share. Yeah, for me, it's an old, it's actually a, an old hymn called Queen of the Earth that an old fiddler played at my wife and I at our wedding. And it was so, uh, it was amazing. And he said, you know, it's interesting. I usually play this at funerals, but you guys requested it for your wedding. And it's one of these songs that's so timeless that it works equally well. And so I'd like to, I'd like to be uh, greeted with that at the end. But I hadn't thought of that until this very second. That's interesting. I, I don't know the name of this opera. I'd have to look up, look it up. But this happened when Richard transitioned. There was a piece of opera playing in the background, and it was one of his favorites. And I didn't pick up on it immediately until after the story was written about us, because the reporter picked up on the opera. And uh, she knew that uh, he had, had liked opera and that particular opera. So I'll, I'm going to have to get the, I'm going to have to go back and read the story and get the name of that opera. Cause that's what I, I would want something similar. It's lovely for me personally. I think just music in general. I mean, I think we seem to all be very musically inclined people, people who surround themselves with music on a day-to-day basis. So I just going back to our conversation about music therapists, I think it really is such a wonderful gift that they provide people in those final moments. But nothing beats like singing along or listening along to live music. That's one of my favorite, favorite things in life and is something I have surely been missing through the pandemic. One song in particular over the last couple years that I have loved and could fall in love with and could listen to over and over again is a song called Oh, What a World by Casey Musgraves. Not a big country music fan, but that song is just so magical. And I feel like for a final, in your final moments, it's a very peaceful song. And I just love the lyrics. Oh, what a world. Don't want to leave. All kinds of magic. It's hard to believe is the line from the chorus. And I just feel like that would be a beautiful way to go. Well, and actually her song Rainbow Mm. Is it oh, yeah. Rainbow? I think it's just an amazing anthem for, for what a lot of people are living through right now. You know, in hospice, mm-hmm. we deal with people who are have the physical symptoms. I, I think what we need to do more of in this country, especially for veterans, is figure out how to help people who have the behavioral symptoms of a serious illness, right? Depression is a serious illness. And if someone commits suicide tomorrow, they're not eligible for hospice or palliative care. There's no such thing. So we, we have a lot of folks as a result of COVID who are fighting these silent battles right now. And, you know, in that song, Casey Musgraves is, is telling people you're worth, it's worth living. Mm-hmm. But we also, I think, as a, as a country, have to provide people with some of the tools and, and the help to continue living. We had asked some members of our community or let them know we were speaking to you today um, and to get their 
thoughts on some questions they wanted to ask. So this one comes from Matt. Uh, It's a two-parter. I'll read the first question alone here. Matt wants to know, what are your views on hospice's interoperability with other disciplines of care, i.e. palliative care, general medicine, etc.? So I I think by interoperability, he means in a technological way. And my opinion is that it's unfortunate that it's going to be tough to do this in a simple way. But basically, a couple years ago, Congress passed a law that said everybody has to be in a a similar format for telehealth and for healthcare record keeping. And we'll give you money to make sure that you're on that format. What they didn't do, though, is give money to the community-based providers, hospice, palliative care, home health. And so you do have this divide between what hospice, palliative care, and home health folks use and what the rest of the healthcare system uses. So what I think is we need a government investment, perhaps as part of an infrastructure bill. That would make some sense. Oh, that would, yeah. For everybody to get on the same page. So I support it fully. Great. He was also wondering, how can the gaps in hospice coverage be addressed? And I think it's important. I'm sure that question comes up with you a lot. It's important for us to note that we're not criticizing hospice care, more so um, this comes from a place of regulation and culture. Well, one of those gaps is in uh, oversight. Congress took a major step last year in terms of oversight, giving CMS, the agency that oversees hospice, more tools. We supported that, worked with Congress um, on it. I think the second part is quality. We need to enforce more stringent quality measures and make sure that folks who are committed participate. The, the, The third part is actually to take some of the red tape out. Why is hospice limited to six months? There's no inherent reason why it should be anymore. There was when it was a cancer-based benefit that arose in the late 70s and early 80s when the country was worried about whether or not this would cost more money than it saved. We've had 40 years of data that have shown us it doesn't cost more money and hospice no longer serves mostly people who have a cancer diagnosis. Dementia is a more prevalent diagnosis now. So hospice itself needs to evolve in terms of the rules. And I think if we do those three things, oversight, quality, and really policy change, then we'll, we'll be making some headway. I find, especially in, with caregiving, yeah. that the best way that policy changes is when a, a person who has that, who is in that area, or the right. legislator, when they realize when they're in the middle of a caregiving experience, when right. they realize really what's what it's all about, that's right. when policy change really happens. It's taking those personal experiences and saying, "I get it." Yeah, and, and actually, it's two things. One is having those people primed and and going through those experiences. Right? We didn't know the the collective when Leon Panetta was sitting down in his community with a hospice that he had just gone through a serious illness with his mom, but it just so happened he had. And mm-hmm. he was a champion waiting to sort of become a champion. It took right. the advocacy to him, and then it took him to sort of run with it. And, and that's the recipe for successful advocacy. You're absolutely right. Uh, you need to have the grassroots army, and then you need to have somebody receptive on the other side. Oh, I'm sure he's got quite the story as well. Absolutely. And, and uh, as does Bob Dole and a lot of the other people who were involved. I mean, that's the other story. It's got to be bipartisan, especially if you're talking about end of life. Because if it's not bipartisan, then we're going to have the death panel conversations and everything that we dealt with in the middle of the Affordable Care Act. 
This does not need to be something that involves Republicans and Democrats and the Catholic Church and everybody else sort of lobbing insults at each other. It's got to be bipartisan if we're going to make any positive change around this issue. I just don't understand how this is not a, an issue that everybody can wrap themselves around with a big hug. Well, that, that's our goal. And I think we, what we need to do is to sort of anticipate where where the world is heading. I mean, for one thing, we have a, a money problem in this country, meaning we don't have it. For another thing, we have a long-term care problem in this country, which we also don't have. So we don't have money. We also don't have long-term care coverage. How are we going to innovate in order to make it work? That's what's going to be required. And so as the great Wayne Gretzky said, right, uh, hockey fan, yeah, you got to skate to where the puck is going. Got to skate to where the puck is. Exactly. Not, not, not where it was. And that's what we're trying to do. Uh, oh, goodness. Christina, we could just do this for hours. Yeah, we always could. That is our job. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I am curious uh, as we're wrapping up here, what are, what connection do you see between the current, I would say, movement on care work, validating care work, paying for care work? Where do you think that conversation that seems to be happening more now, how does that tie into hospice and all these things that you've talked about that you guys are trying to accomplish at NHPCO? Well, I I think in in two, two very fundamental ways. I mean, one thing is, the, the key part of, of any hospice benefit is the, or home health benefit is the, the aid, the, the least skilled, least paid part of the, of the interdisciplinary team is the most important. And right up there and tied for the most important is the, the unpaid family or loved one support. And so how hospice, the nurses and the social workers interact with the, the patient's family and the patient themselves, and then also with the person who's in, in the home the most, the aid is key. And I think a couple of things are key here. First of all, we have a national debate going on right now about the minimum wage. And we sometimes have arguments over whether we support or don't support the minimum wage. Obviously, we support the minimum wage. I think that people who do that hard work should be paid much more than that. The question is, are we prioritizing that as a country? Are we paying for that? as part of the the benefit or not. But the other thing is a recognition that even if we're paying the home health aid minimum wage, the family is still going to be required to pick up a big part of the burden. And Christopher knows, even with hospice in the home, there's a lot that's going to be required of you and a lot of support that you're going to need in every way. So there is, I think, a natural need for caregiving and hospice to make sure that we're working in synergy for the for the benefit of the, the folks we, we love. Do you have any other questions for Ido, Chris? I, other than I'm just really honored to be on this uh, podcast with you today. Well, I'm honored to be on the podcast with you guys and would love to chat more anytime. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. And is there anything else you want people to know <laughs> about uh things that are going on in NHPCO, things you're doing personally that you want to share? You know what? Personally, I'm a father, I'm a husband, you know, just like everyone else, working to get through this pandemic and virtual learning and everything else. And I think the most important thing with this all is I think we've learned about priorities and what's important, what's not. I think that we've learned about the importance of love, which I think we've always kind of known. And I'm looking forward to the next 
decade or whatever comes and making sure that we that we live our lives in balance and harmony and, and with as much love as we can for our fellow uh, human beings. Very well said. And and how can people uh, find you on the, on the internet? And Yeah. So nhpco.org. We have obviously a Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter, Ed Bannock. You can just find me through my name. There is no other Ed Bannock in the world. Mm-hmm. And recently I made my first foray onto TikTok. Oh boy. <laughs> okay. My, my, this, we'll end with this. My daughter actually connected me with a TikTok influencer, and, and I had her on my podcast. So we're, we're going places. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm catching up to the uh, 21st century uh, quickly. You know, it's great uh, to visit with you. We'll Thank look you. forward to following uh, your great work. And Thank you. Uh, it's just been a pleasure. Take care, guys. Thank you. Thank you, too. But for our listeners, if you've uh, enjoyed our conversation, I'm sure that you have. Please uh, subscribe to How We Got Here on your favorite podcast platform. Rate us, please. Five stars, five stars. And a special thanks to our producer in the Posh Studios of Oddbox Productions, Bill Odman in downtown St. Louis. We'll see you for another episode of How We Got Here real soon. How We Got Here. Proudly sponsored by Anthem for caregiving.com and the Whole Care Network.